Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So the reporting season, well, actually, the other thing that was really interesting as well as um, watching uh, Alibaba at the moment, and, you know, which was in such a downtrend. But I think the overriding thing for me with that was uh, Charlie Munger took big positions, didn't he, in Alibaba and then kind of got burnt by it. um, Yeah, I don't don't know his entry levels, but... um, I think around 100, something like that. Yeah, I mean, I think people... I mean, one of our sort of peers in the industry got a bit carried away with China just as we were getting a bit cautious on it. So, mm-hmm. and now we're in this interesting position where I think, I think there is quite a simple trade around a, a Chinese reopening. Mm-hmm. I, I think it'll be pretty gradual. Yeah. If there's one thing the Chinese are very, very sensitive to, it's inflation. So, why is it? Well, there's a very long history of Chinese empires you know, dynasties, imperial dynasties um, collapsing under high food prices. So they're, they're extremely sensitive to, uh, you know, unemployment. You, you, take such a, you take such a historical perspective on things, don't you? Well, yeah, I mean, we tell these, ourselves these stories that we live in a new world, but there's nothing new. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, my sort of latest sort of obsession at the moment is that we tell ourselves we're in these, you know, nice little discrete nation states or whatever, but we're... We're really not. I mean, the US is an empire. Mm. You know, just the continental US is an empire, right? I mean, they fought a pretty good war with the French and a pretty good war with the well, the French and the Indians and and the, and the British and, mm. and the British and a pretty good war with the uh, Spanish, mm-hmm. right? To get control of that territory, right? And yeah. it's all pretty disparate and all pretty different. And China's an empire. You know, just Han China took over its whole territory. Indonesia is clearly an empire. It's the empire of Java. Mm. So. You know, we can tell ourselves that the the goals are all different or whatever, but I don't I don't know that they are hugely different. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, and we're seeing that right now in, in Europe, sadly. Um, you know, so I think it's you know, you know, but but yeah, no, the Chinese are, and and in 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 very recent history, uh, Tiananmen Square uh, corresponded to you know, really very serious economic disruption in China Mm. um, in the late 80s and early 90s with incredibly high inflation, you know, 25% inflation. Yeah. So they're they're very sensitive to it. Um, But but as well, you should be, you know, there's there's, there's never a good outcome once you get very serious monetary inflation. Mm. Um, Which is what we're going to be talking about today. So let's do an introduction. Let's do it. (laughs) Shares for Beginners. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Inflation, recession, high interest rates, mortgage stress, cost of living pressures, and I'll add war to that list as well. Uh, Just some of the cheery headlines that we can look forward to in 2023. And this is the first recording of the new year. And who better to welcome back to the microphone than old friend of the podcast, Julian McCormack, investment analyst from Platinum Asset Management. G'day, Julian. G'day, Phil. Great to see you. Yeah, good to see you. And happy new year. Happy new year to you. So Platinum Asset Management focuses on one asset class, international shares. So today we're zooming out to consider the big picture. Um, so we were just talking then, I'm, I'm going to add that in, you know, as a prequel to the podcast episode and, uh, inflation seems to be the big thing. And the first question that I had for you is what went wrong for markets in 2022? And I'm also feeling that that's almost the wrong question because there's question. no right, but, but there's no right or wrong, is there? Not really. Oh. It's just situation, the, yeah. the way the situation is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because people get it in their heads that, you know, markets are against them or markets, you know, they can run with the markets. But yeah. the markets just are, aren't they? Pretty much. Yeah. And the answer I was going to give you was mm. they went down a bit because they went up a lot. <laughs> and that sounds stupid, that, but, it's, yeah. but it's about right. And we're very sensitive to the notion of things, of companies over-earning. Mm. And that gets a bit confusing for people because they think, well, more money's better. But um, up to a point, Lord Copper. So when, you know, th- th- think about it in, in terms of your own personal capacity to earn money. You can go through, you know, sprint periods in your life where you work two or three jobs or you, you know, you really squeeze it out um, at one job and do very well or whatever. But if it's unsustainable, you know, it can't last forever. Mm. I can't remember who said that, but it's, <laughs> it's a funny old quote. It's one of those sort of, you know, Sam Goldwyn quotes. And that's what we saw. So a combination of the end of a period of structurally declining inflation and interest rates, which was probably already ending. Mm. Like this is the thing that catches people out. What has entered people's minds is, is where everything was fine before COVID and then COVID came and then everything got pretty screwy after that. And uh, so wages were growing um, properly measured in the States at about 4% year on year, uh, late 2019 into early 2020. You began to get incipient inflation in the system. We'd already had a couple of goes at tightening rates, you know, remember, and, mm-hmm. and shrinking the balance sheet. So, Because that was about 2018, wasn't that's it, right. that Powell was trying to get the well, interest I mean, rates up somewhere I mean, in the Trump presidency? They've been talking about it since 2015. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you know, we've had a, a fair old go at it for a fair range of you know period of time um and then you get this incredible 
stimulus, uh, which was um, fiscal, not monetary. So it was government spending, not 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 interest rate um, manipulation. And mm. the combination of those factors saw this incredible share price performance. Um, you know, it's in the States, the market I know sort of reasonably well. We go from about 3,000 points to, to, you know, just under 5,000 in about 18 months. So that's that, pretty that's unusual. the S&P 500? That's the S&P 500, yeah, yeah, thank you yeah, for yeah. specifying, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the NASDAQ does much better than that. So the NASDAQ goes from, you know, just under 8,000 to, to 15,000 um, in that period. So, And, and when you say the, the stimulus and... Mm. It's monetary stimulus, or I always get confused between the two. Well, you, you shouldn't feel uh, funny for getting confused because there, mm. there's there's two sides of the same coin. Because mm-hmm. one's interest rates and one's yeah, government's one's, one's interest money. rates and one one's wasn't government spending. So in various different guises in the in the systems in which we operate, in, in inverted commas in the West, but I include sort of Japan and South Korea and stuff. There are appropriations powers that reside with the the you know whatever the legislature is, and then there are these other bodies that sit off to the side of it, mm. which have sort of delegated powers, um, which which we call central banks, and they have basically set their mandates around the use of interest rates. They can use monetary aggregates. They can use a whole bunch of things if they want, but they don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they've done this funny thing added onto that, which is bond buying. Um, but it really amounts to the same thing. Um, it is it is the setting of interest rates in order to induce activity. So long way of, of sort of introducing a point, which is to remind people that we had about a decade of zero interest rates and not much going on, mm. right? Yeah. It was all a bit... It was, it was fine, but it was all a bit lousy. You know, it was a long, slow expansion, nothing amazing. And then we got the fiscal in combination with it, and the world went mad. Mm. So it's those combination, it's that combination of things um, that that saw equities go ballistic, so stocks go up a lot. And that was really, I'd summarize that as you held a pretty high multiple of earnings, and the earnings went wild i mean wild so mm. you know u.s corporate earnings went up by over 50 percent in a couple of years and that's over the last or oh, say 2019 to from, from, 2020. from 2020 early from the beginning of 2020 yeah really to about the end of 2021 yeah, yeah yeah right and then they sort of held that level mm-hmm. well, they've done all right since then um you know earnings wise but but that 18 months was just dramatic mm. and so that's really pretty simple right because the 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 terminology gets confusing because because deficit sounds bad but if it, so let's just close the economy off and 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 say there's only three sectors within it there's a household sector so you me and our mm. families and whatever there's a corporate sector, so the people who employ us, and there's a government sector, which is pretty self-explanatory. So if we just if we just rather falsely define the economy as those three sectors, if the government sector is printing or producing a deficit, it's automatically injecting a surplus into those other two sectors. And and that's what we saw in the presence of this very accommodate, and that's the fiscal bit, mm. that's the government spending. And then the monetary stuff was important 
because mainstream economists uh, get themselves a bit tangled up, in my view, um, around this printing of deficits because they say to themselves, well, oh, no, don't worry about that, mate, because if the government prints a deficit, produces a deficit, it's got to fund it. Mm. Aha. So that's a trick because if we go back to that three-sector model of the economy, well, if the government's printing a deficit, how are they going to do it? Well, they need to either tax us or sell bonds to us. Mm. So therefore, it's all a bit of a, a zero-sum game or a constant-sum game. But that ignores um, what we'd now call sort of un- unconventional monetary policy, mm. right? So the setting of interest rates by virtue of the buying of bonds at the central bank, um, that, that allowed this enormous fiscal stimulus with no, well, in the very short term, no sort of cost yeah. to the other two. No sectors. consequences. That's right. That's right. That's what <laughs> yeah. it feels like in the immediate term. Mm. And now- A the, sugar hit. The, a, an enormous sugar hit. It's a good yeah. way of characterizing it. And now, you, and now you get to the hangover of that sugar hit. You know, mm. that, you know the, 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 the kids ate a whole lot of Kit Kat and, and, and red cordial at 12 o'clock and now it's 3.30 in the afternoon. Mm. Things aren't going to go that well, right? So um, that's what happened in 2022. Yeah. Well, that's great because that kind of segues into what I wanted to talk about in the bond market. Yep. Because I don't think many investors really understand the it's fixed income. Is that what it mm-hmm. generally is called, the yep. fixed income market? Yep. And there's corporate bonds and there's government bonds. Yep. That's basically it. Yep. But it's huge, isn't it? Massive. Yeah, much much bigger than... M- multiples of the bo- Stock of the markets market, around yeah. the world, yeah. yeah. So can you just give a bit of an overview, your... Um, sure can. ...potted summary of it? Sure can. And there's two different bits. Well, as you, as you specified. So there's a corporate bond market, mm. and you are taking a credit risk with the issuer in, a, in, in, in addition to the interest rate risk of, of what that instrument will pay you. Can so, I just um, interrupt you just for a second? Because yeah. um, another guest um, said to me, and it was a great summary, you can either own it or loan it. That's and it. It's a two ways of investing. That's it's it. great just to That's break it down. That's 100% right. I was actually thinking things. that as you, were, yeah. as, you were, as you were talking, not in that lovely um, Poetic. Poetic. Way. Exactly. <laughs> uh, not in that poetic um, way, but... That's right. You can you can either provide equity or you can provide debt, and and anything mm. else like a hybrid, an option, a derivative, or whatever, it's a form of one of those two things, or even sometimes a bit of a combination of both. Mm. You know, in the form of a hybrid, so um, or a convertible or whatever. Right? They're, they're combinations of debt or equity. So you can own it or loan it. So if we're in fixed interest world, or bond market world, we're only dealing with loaning, so we don't own anything. Mm. They're by and large nominal assets, so they're priced in dollars that can lose value in the presence of inflation. Mm-hmm. And most bonds will be fixed coupon, right? So I bought a whatever eight percent yielding corporate we, we bond. Hear, well, we hear about the ten-year bond, say just as simply ten-year Australian exactly. bond, and in ten years' time, if you hold it for that length of time, you'll get that return. That's it. But in the meantime, it goes up and down in value. Wobbles up and down. And those wobblings up and downs, they, they um, uh, influence the value of that instrument day by day by day. Mm. So, so the price is set with regard to the interest rate. And simply put, it's worth rem- remembering, if you buy a bond that yields five and then interest rates go up, for the dollar you spent buying that bond that paid you five, 
the next day, if it goes to 10%, you can buy a 10% yielding thing. So the thing that you own that's yielding you five is worth less. Hmm. It's not worthless. It's worth less, right? So, and then the credit risk part of that is, well, I, and I hope they pay me back. So, so there's the interest rate risk, which is what I mean by the change in rates determining what, what I should pay for the bond today. Um, and we measure that via a thing called duration. Um, and then on top of that, there's this other thing, credit risk. Now, that's all corporate bonds. That's all companies borrowing money from you, right? So if it's BHP, they're probably going to pay you back. Um, if it's, I shouldn't use any names of companies, but if it's, you know, spivvy.com or something, yeah, um, yeah. it might not. And, and so that's, there's an overlay of credit risk on, on, on top of that uh, interest rate risk. And then we get to governments. They, by and large, don't default in their own currency. If they do, they're trying pretty hard to do it. Um, but then you might be taking some currency risk as well, which is you know, a bit of an overlay. But if you're, if you're buying a US Treasury or you're buying an Australian government bond, you're taking absolutely minuscule credit risk you know, to the extent that we call it a, a risk-free rate. Yep. Um, you know, somewhere out the curve, depends on how you think about the world, but, you know, it's either going to be the 10-year or the 5-year or something, which is the, the price that sets all other prices, right? Because if it's risk-free and I can get that return, so if it's a, if it's a US 10-year and I'm getting, you know, wherever we are today, 350 or whatever it was, you know, last night, 3.5%, why would I pay someone much more for anything that, that yields less than that because mm-hmm. I don't have to take any risk. I, you know, this bloke's going to pay me in dollars, so I sort of know that's there. Yep. So that that sits at the heart of how we price all assets. And so when rates go up, then you get this repricing effect of all other assets. And and some of that's just very simple. You know, am I going to pay as much for a house now that my interest rate to borrow against that house has gone up? No, mm. I can't. Yep. My alternate use of capital has changed, you know, in that example of having a 5% yielding bond versus a 10% yielding bond the next that, that's day. That's interesting you say, though, alternative use of capital. Yeah. Because your capital can go into anywhere, an equity market, yeah. you know, uh, REITs, all sorts of instrument, instruments. Yeah. But your decision is affected by that risk-free rate. Yeah, to all that relative pricing. Yeah. yeah. And, and so we're in this, I think, we think, uh, quite protracted period of really the repricing of risk because we had a decade of those zero interest rate and indeed negative interest rate policies or outcomes and that was massively distortionary and is now coming back out of the system and and so what i what i would ask people to remember if they're about my age or up is when you remember or hear about someone talking about their sort of 17 or 18 percent mortgage in the late 80s inflation is higher now than it was then Mm. right so that is just giving you a little sense of how incredibly distorted the world has become for a whole bunch of reasons and maybe i shouldn't get too distracted but i'll just i would summarize that distortion as saying no one really wanted to take the pain of an adjustment after the financial crisis, and indeed going all the way really back to the early 2000s under Greenspan. And that that induced this sort of 
um, molly coddling effect um, by central banks. The and the and the molly coddling markets. Well, yeah, or, gen, wanting to yeah. you know avoid any sort of adverse outcomes. So so bankruptcies and reconstructions and you know mm. things get hard. Um, yeah. this is these are cyclical systems. And interest rates cause those sort of interest rates cause problems. It. Yeah, mm. and um, the effect of that in this last period of you know not unconventional monetary policy was to set rates at zero and to flatten yield curves. And that's very problematic mm. because money is created in the commercial banking system. That, that's where, oh, I don't know, 99.99% of all money should be created. Because that's when, when you get a mortgage from that's the right. bank. They're just suddenly making up the money and giving it to you. You've summarized that perfectly. Mm. Because most people, if they've, um, you know, if, if they remember their silly old economics professor professors will think no 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 it's not right because it's a fractional reserve system and so the bank has a reserve mm. and so they take some of the you know they take their deposits and they lend again that's all bunkum it's not true mm. it's not true legally what happens is you know as a sort of step-by-step process when my loan is approved a deposit is created mm. That is legally what happens. That is functionally what happens. Yeah. And, and then I go and spend it, <laughs> right? And, and then I'm on the hook for it. It's not free, but then I'm on, a, on the hook for it. So money creation happens in the... In the and there is a, there is a, a view to deposits or, or reserves, which is, with, you know, there, there's periodic testing. And, and I, I, I don't understand the Australian banking system as well as I understand the US one. But, you know, there, there is a, a weekly observation of of reserving in the banking system and reserves only matter when they're in short supply because mm. that forces rates up so when when we're talking about the interest rate that the federal reserves the central bank of the states sets that's the inter that's the fed funds rate and it's in a 25 uh, uh, i was gonna 0.25 band and the central bank maintains that band and within that band, banks exchange reserves. Mm. So just think about I'm Citigroup and you're Wells Fargo. Someone, all my mortgagees come in and they, they pay back a mortgage, their mortgage. Now I've got too much money, but you're in the reverse situation that week. Everyone's rushed into your branches and they've taken out mortgages. You don't have enough capital. Mm. But we can just resolve that by me lending you some. And I do that within the Fed funds market at the Fed funds rate. That is what the interest rate that's being set by the central bank is. It is that rate. So they're the gear wheels that are intertwined with each other that's and right. uh, turning and affecting each that's other. Right. And, that's yeah. right. And that gets really important because if there's plenty of reserves in the system, that rate just ticks along and we all know what we'll lend to each other out and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And that's that, that's an overnight rate, in inverted commas. It's not really an overnight rate. It's a second-by-second second rate. You know, mm. we're, we're constantly doing this um, intertwining of our balance sheets in the yep. banking system. And then all other rates are sort of set off the back of that, mm. right? So if I go out further in time, I want more rate, usually. <laughs> and, and, and if I am taking more risk, then I want more rate as well. So, so everything else should slope upwards from that sort of T equals zero rate, the, yeah. the Fed funds rate, or what we'd call a cash rate. So um, 
when you adjust rates up, it, it, it has the effect of, in effect, taking liquidity out of the system. Those terms are sort of bandied around, liquidity, blah, blah, blah. But so that whole money sloshing around the system yeah. is reduced. In effect. Yeah. In yeah. effect. And the tide goes out. And the tide goes out. But it is more nuanced than that. Yeah. Because people must remember, you know, what the world was like in 2005 or six mm. with much higher interest rates. Yeah. Liquidity was everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's you right. Know, I had, and that was 6%. I, I got sick of people jamming letters from the bank through my letterbox offering mm-hmm. me another credit card offering me you know yeah. right with a much higher rate mm. so it's not just the rate it is actually the animal spirits with which we're all operating so so it, it is it is it's never one thing but the but the rate is pretty important in the expression in your face which listeners can't see at the moment but you r- referred to the and I'm thinking you're starting to talk about the yield curve here. Exactly. And the, the direction of the yield curve. And exactly. we've heard about the inversion of the yep. yield curve. Yeah. And this is a really hard question for people to understand. Can you try and explain it simply, what's going on sure. and what I, it I, means to I, I think equity is, markets? And I think it is really simple. Mm. I think it is really simple. If I lend you money today, mm-hmm. I'm pretty happy if you just pay it back. Mm. But if I lend you money in a year's time, well, and especially if it's a lot of money, I want to. I want a rate that compensates mm-hmm. me for that, and that's that is, that's the yield curve. Mm. You so take the longer the longer you go for the you longer want the you higher. go, the more you should ask for, right? Yeah, like yeah. like it's an opportunity cost for you, mm. um, and there's a bit of risk in there around credit as well. So, at t equals zero at at today, the rate should be lower than in a year's time, and five years time, and ten years time, mm. and that should be you know, relatively monotonically sloping, um, so one directional yeah. at, at a pretty constant slope mm-hmm. in a sort of, in inverted commas, normal environment. Yeah. So what happens when the yield curve inverts? For some reason, we can go and get a rate as a bond buyer that's lower five years or 10 years out than, for example, at the two-year so they're very. So limited. that's an inverted yield curve. Inverted, it's going yeah, in the wrong right. direction. And that, that's an unusual direction. An yeah. unusual direction. So, so yeah. what's happening there is the um, in, investors are demanding a higher rate at the two-year mark than at the ten-year mark, and all the ten-year is is the average of ten years, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or however many periods you want to divide that up into. Yeah. And so what it's saying to you is that interest rates will be higher for the front part of that period of time than at the back part of that period of time. And that is used as both a predictor of recession, but I think more importantly, it helps to force recession to occur. Mm. And so this is where I think there's a bit of confusion about this. Um, The academic papers around this stuff, I think the best relationship is between the three-month and the 10-year, but people look at two-year and 10-year tenors and, and, and use that as predictor of recession. But it's doing something mechanical as well because, remember, money creation occurs in the banking system. And these are these wheels moving around. These, these wheels effective, moving around. Effective, effective, and if, or cogs moving around. And if I, yeah. That's right. And if I'm a banker, I am looking to borrow short and lend long. Mm-hmm. But if I'm borrowing short at a high rate, and lending low at a longer rate, at a longer tenor, I'm not in a huge hurry. Mm. 
am I? There's no reason to. There's no reason to. To lend money, is there? No. Yeah. So that helps force recession onto the system. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the combination of both of those things. And it's sort of used as some sort of magical augury or something, right? Like, oh, wow, you know, it's predicting something. It's actually forcing it to happen. Mm. So it's not it's not just predictive. Yeah, it's helping force it to happen, and that is observable right now. So you you have had very rapid credit growth, well, for modern times, very rapid credit growth in the states, which uh, looks like it will slow. Is how I'd premise that, largely because we get survey data from the Federal Reserve. So we get a senior loan officer survey, and that, and so senior loan officers are saying they are tightening lending standards right now or actually in the last quarter, um, but also the money supply is shrinking. So, so if there's less, and the money supply is a pretty problematic thing because there's not really a quantity of money. So when I say that, think about us at a dinner table, mm. and if we all sit down with 100 bucks in our pocket, and there's 10 of us, there's 1,000 bucks, right? Mm. Well, but is it? Because what happens if we all lend each other 50 bucks? Is there more money or less money? Mm. And then we keep doing that in circles. Is there more money or less money? Well, it's bloody confusing because it's the same amount of money, but now there's all this credit on top of the same amount of money. So it's the circulation of money as well as the quantity of it, mm-hmm. which, makes the, which makes it very difficult to measure. But so we do have measures of it, uh, of the quantity of money. And, and the one that everyone tends to look at is M2, which is cash and cash-like, um, you know, cash and near cash instruments. And that is shrinking in the United States today year on year for about the only time in history mm. it's an incredibly unusual for the money supply to be shrinking very very unusual and the three month rolling and four month rolling and six month rolling year on year change is is uh, sorry period on period change is off the charts unusual why because we got so much of it, <laughs> right? Like we got yeah. 20% of GDP injected into the economy over two years by the government funded by the central bank, as we discussed before. Mm. And all that's happening is that's coming back out. So um, so it's just a, a natural reaction to the excesses a, of the past and yeah, the, the consequences. It's a reaction yeah. to it, but I don't know if it's natural. It, yeah. it, it just is a reaction to it. And central banks have been absolutely shocked by the boom in inflation because we all told ourselves stories about inflation that it wouldn't oh no it can't happen but isn't that just a basic thing when you put more money into an economy it's going to overheat it hundred (laughs) percent it's just happened so many times in history hundred percent hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There was we're, some, we're talking about the Federal Reserve, who I suppose, or you know, or the, um, the RBA here. And yeah, there was. There, there was supposed some, to be have expertise in this area. Yeah, I, look, I have a bit of sympathy for them. Mm. I have a bit of sympathy for them, and I and I was, we are, we were kind of inflationists, but even we were saying, well, you know, like careful, we don't know, mm. because the institutional framework in which this stuff is all happening 
has a massive bearing on it. And what do I mean? Um, wealth inequality is probably pretty important for understanding inflation and inflationary dynamics. Well, it's a huge. I mean, I didn't want to bring it up, but it just seems to be that when asset prices exactly. rise, the people who are rich already are just going to get richer. Exactly. And it has yeah. no real world consumer price inflationary no. impact at all. No. Uh, so that's point one. Um, point two, um, you've had this very unusual fall in the labor market participation rate in the United States. And if you go back about 18 months, that's what the Federal Reserve guys were saying. People who just don't want to work. Well, it's a whole bunch of things. Living in their uh, own space. Do you know what the difference is between mm. them and us? Mm. And it's not just them. It's, it's the United States on one side with a participation rate of about 61. And then us, New Zealand, Canada, Germany, a whole bunch of other sort of um, low uh, population growth places with very, very high uh, levels of income and wealth. So, so not that different. Mm. We have 65 to 68, 70 in Germany. So what the hell is the difference? Why is 5 or 6% of the population in one place not working and it is in the other place? Mm. And I hate to tell you, I think the difference is incarceration rate mm. and opioid abuse. Mm. That's the difference. Wow. Yeah, because they are huge problems in the huge States, aren't they? Huge problems. Yeah. And mm. it's difficult to pe- for people to get their head around it. Mm. We don't know what the mortality rate is. Uh, controlled you know, double-blind studies of uh, mortality among um, um, opioid users are incredibly low, mm. but that would be in a clinical environment. And sort of population-level studies of drug users like heroin or whatever, it, it's... Oh, even and but fentanyl now, which is incredibly, incredibly, in, incredibly yeah, dangerous stuff. Yeah, people yeah. are so, taking it in unsupervised dosages. Yeah. yeah. So, so we don't know what the mortality rate is. Mm. My guess is it would be um, very low single-digit percentage. Mm. Um, otherwise, well, it's not observable in the data. Yep. To yeah. To see a higher, but there will be a that. number of some sort. So, so, yeah. so if it's if it's one percent, it's ten million people mm-hmm. off this gone on opioids, mm. right? So if it's 1% dying with 100,000 people dying per year, it's 10 million. We also know that there's around about 250 million prescriptions for, for opioids written every year in the States. So that's w- roughly one prescription for every adult in the mm. country. Mm. That's a pretty good rate. So it's a lot of people. Um, and obviously that's going to be very unevenly distributed. Mm. <laughs> so, So... What's the point about that in terms of monetary policy? I have some sympathy for the Federal Reserve folks who were saying 18 months ago, well, I mean, we're not seeing inflation. We're not seeing uh, wage growth. And we, we, the inflation that we might be seeing might just be um, a blip and it might go away and it might draw more people back into the labor market, point one. Point two, well, there's no unions anymore, mate. So no one's got any labor... Uh, bargaining power mm. so therefore wages won't go up well everyone just quit <laughs> that's what happened mm. so uh the the you know the job levers to unemployed so the ratio of people who are quitting jobs the um, ratio of people unemployed the ratio of people who are ratio of jobs open to the ratio of to, to, to the number of people unemployed are just off the charts high and so finally finally once labor markets got tight enough you entered like a different sort of regime um, that said, we're only just now starting to compare to the high rates of labor, um, of wage inflation of last year. 
Mm. So the rate of change is probably likely to go down um, at the margin, uh, would be my guess. Because, and so, so if people want to check this stuff, they can go and check the Atlanta Fed wage tracker. That's mm. really that's really useful. Mm. It's a proper measure of what's going on in the labour market as opposed to average hourly earnings, which is really bumpy. And that's that's pretty simple because I mean, if someone retires and they're a neurosurgeon and they earn a million bucks a year, and someone enters the labour market and they're a barista and they earn fifty grand, well, did wages go down? Mm. I mean, sort of, but not really. Like the wages per sort of unit of work, of work. done. Yeah, it's like type. Yeah, yeah like you need to sort of think pretty hard about how to measure those yeah. things, and that's what that Atlanta Fed wage tracker does. So that that is looks pretty stubbornly set at about six point three, six point four percent year on year, which is the highest in the series by miles, mm. going mm. back to uh, nineteen eighty three. So. It's in wages now. The rate of change of the wages might come down because because if wages were 100 three years ago, then they went to 110 over the last couple of years. Maybe they won't go to 120. Maybe maybe they'll slow down a bit because the rate of change was so fast. But hmm. I th- it, my gut feel is that wages will be very, very stubbornly high. And that is what is being observed. And in our previous discussions, you've mentioned that these high wages always uh, precede a recession. Correct. Yeah. And high employment precedes a recession. Correct. Yeah. That's the cycle. That is. That is. That's There's the no cycle. getting around it, is there? Nope. Yeah. Nope. Um, well, there hasn't been hitherto. Mm-hmm. Um, so average hourly earnings have never gone from over five to under three without a 10% unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. So it's a, there's only a couple of observations of that in 60 years or 70 years. So it's, yeah. you know, it's not a scientific sample. And what um, Jerome Powell, um, who's you know, the head honcho at the Federal Reserve, is saying is, well, I don't know, maybe we just need to lower the amount of jobs being offered. But I don't know how the hell you do that. Mm, that's, mm. that's really threading a needle. And especially if you've got that um, under-participation rate as well. Yeah, exactly. Keeping a, a lid on things as well. It, yeah. yeah, precisely. Um, there's, there's a few funny things going on around that. There's probably a bit of labour hoarding. Mm-hmm. So if you're running a factory and you're finding it difficult to employ people and you've found it really hard over like five years and it's got harder and harder and harder to employ people and now you've got your team fully set, you don't want to fire anyone. Mm. Cause you're afraid, after of, them, you're afraid you? of losing yeah. them, yeah. right? Yeah. So there is a bit of labour hoarding going on. Um, and, and, and that is probably skewing the unemployment rate mm. lower. Um, so, and, and migration has been really lousy as well. And mm. so the flexibility of labor systems all over the world has been impaired by just COVID, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. you know, we can't get fruit pickers. You know, my, my cousins run a farm over in WA and one of my cousins got, does fly in, fly out cans to basically Geraldton WA. Mm. So that's a pretty long trip, mate, but they can't get anyone else. So that's going on all over the world. So less flexibility. And those things are always self-correcting, but the mechanism of correction is usually pretty painful. Mm. And so that then gets back to corporate earnings because what we're talking about is, you know, and the Fed is saying this, we have a role in moderating demand. That's what they're saying. Mm. That's a direct quote. And that means somehow inducing people to do less stuff. And about the only way they can do that is via the wealth effect. So driving up interest rates, Mm -hmm. 
which then resets the prices of everything, which you talked about before. Yeah, yeah. And that's why they're doing quantitative tightening, which is you know rather than buying bonds, so swapping a bond for cash, they're taking the cash and putting the bond back out. Mm, mm. So it's taking cash back out of the system in very rough terms. So there's a wealth effect thing. And so we've seen that through 2022. But there's also... So it's a little bit like the pump in your blow-up mattress. You, know, you put put some in, then take some out. 100%. And, mm. 100%. Mm. Like it's mechanically like that. So remember, we tried that for 10 years. Mm. Didn't really do anything in the real economy. You know, we had pretty stubbornly low rates of economic growth. In fact, it was the longest, slowest economic expansion of the post-war period. Mm. And I think actually in the history of the Republic of the United States... And then you got this big whooshing effect at the end. And then, so there's two effects. Wealth effect, which they talked about all the way on the way up, doing quantitative easing. They talked about the wealth effect. And now uh, this moderating demand thing, it is parking people on the sideline of the labor market. It's, it, it's inducing less hiring mm-hmm. and or um, people getting fired, sadly. That's... Just the way that so works. So the inequality happened when asset prices were being were ballooning through the, the that period, and then the people that are going to have to pay for it are the less equal. It's nuanced, Phil, because contrary to the mythology of the seventies, the seventies was a really dynamic period for everyday people. It was so people people don't under, who might remember or are not old enough to remember the seventies yeah. was a period of stubbornly high inflation. Wasn't stubbornly it? high inflation, and it gets. Yeah. And, and an oil crisis. And well. an oil crisis. And it was a very difficult period and a very dislocated period. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, very similar to some of the institutional framework type stuff that's happening right yeah. now. So mm-hmm. there was a monetary system and it ended. Yeah. There was an energy p- supply system and it ended. Right? So, mm-hmm. so the monetary system was, we went off, you know, Nixon shot, the Bretton Woods system, which fixed the exchange rates of currencies globally. Which we didn't do until the 80s here in Australia. That's right. It took us until 86, right? Mm. But but we did because we kept on ratcheting exchange rates different. So so we went from, I mean, we were a buck 10 or something, right, in the Mm. Bretton Woods period. And we went to, you know, sort of whatever it was, 70s or 80s. And then, and then we and then we, you know, liberalised. I'm getting those numbers wrong, but yeah, you know, people can check them. Um, but but yeah, so what we'd all sit around and have these currency boards or whatever, and then finally everyone just gave up and said, "Oh, stuff it. We we'll just let them all trade mm. with each other." And that happened through the '70s, so it's very disruptive. We had an energy supply system with the United States being the supplier of oil to the rest of the world, mm. and or controlling oil supply in the parts that it needed to. That's why there is a Saudi Arabia, right? Mm. Because this, the, you know, the family. So or yeah. the, the, the Saud family, mm. right? Like, you know, it, that country's named after a family, right? <laughs> That's right, yeah. And that family were the blokes who said, you know, we'll, we'll do a little deal here, right? Mm. And, and, you know, part of that was the oil. Well, that all broke down because, you know, the, um, you know, what was it, Six-Day War, Yom Kippur War, the, you know, there's a whole bunch of pretty um, uncomfortable stuff that happened in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And the Arab world got jack of it and said, mm. we're going to, and literally said, we're going to use the oil sword. Right? So, yeah. so that system of energy provision ended. Mm. The United States went from being an energy exporter to an energy importer. And the places it was importing from um, became much less amenable, at least on face value, to, mm. to um, 
doing that cheaply and easily. So all those things happen. And that's sort of all happening now, I would suggest. Mm. We want to transition away from fossil fuels. It's very difficult. Yep. So we're, we are- The price of in, energy is good. Yeah, we are in effect is going ending up. our own energy yeah. system provision uh, of, of energy now. And there is in, enormous strains around this post Bretton Woods dollar-based mm. um, system of exchange rates as well. And, and that's- problematic crypto is a part of that you know there are these sort of manifestations of this stuff cropping up all over the place so difficult environment but do you know what these economies created heaps of jobs and they grew very fast through the 70s but in a very very volatile fashion Mm. right so the average rate of growth real in the states was just under three and a half percent through the 70s but you basically grew at five real or zero Mm. And it just lurched around all over the place. And it was in the presence of, of, of this inflation. So what I want to impress upon people is we have had a sort of one-way street in terms of asset prices for a long time. Which is stock market prices is a big part of it. Yeah. And property. And property, right? yeah. yeah. So all that's happened, I think, mm-hmm. is we've had um, a, a, a resetting lower of a, of interest rates and a resetting higher correspondingly mm. of borrowing capacity mm. and we've made it pretty expensive and difficult to build houses as well which doesn't help which is you know as a guy um at benelong and i'm forgetting his name is excellent chris benningfield you should look at it. everyone should look at his stuff he's excellent mm-hmm. he makes the point we do make it very difficult and expensive to build houses as well so it's a combination of all those things but yeah whatever we can borrow a lot more that goes into the price of houses at least partly mm-hmm. and look back to that earlier point Interest rates are incredibly low for the observed inflation in the system. Mm. That and historically as well. Historically, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. we're talking about you know what yeah. is it, three percent or something? Totally, yeah. totally, yeah. totally. Right. So um, one just needs to be pretty cautious about wanting to take on a whole lot of risk mm. around that, because going back all the way back down to the point around yield curves the cost of money is too has been historically too low it is adjusting higher that process is difficult and volatile Mm. Um, right now um, markets have become pretty fascinated with well inflation and interest rates Um, and so right now today early january I mean, markets have responded very, very well to the start of the new year, and have been pretty. They've been very chirpy, actually, really, mm. for most of the. Oh, on, any, on any sniff of the idea that's that right. interest rates are not going to go up as fast as that's right. Oh, hooray. That, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm. So I'm very cautious about that. We're very cautious yeah. about that, whilst acknowledging that that markets are big and smart. So maybe the market's right, and all we have to worry about is inflation. But mm. we would suggest that the next leg of this process is corporate margins will adjust much much lower which means that the return on listed investments is going to be down yeah lower. yeah yeah that's right and so multiples have come down a bit like the p.e ratio p.e ratios have come down yeah. a bit mm-hmm. um but have they we're not sure they have because the earnings probably need to get reset much mm. much lower um yeah. and, and and let me just put it in sort of concrete terms i mean Businesses that we look at every day in trucking or <laughs> so we're looking at one at the moment that sells pool equipment, mm. right? 
these businesses, their, their earnings doubled in two years, and now people are pricing them on the earnings that doubled in two years. Because they're and, looking backwards at the earnings. And they're yeah. thinking, well, that looks pretty yeah. cheap. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty cheap. And, and, and people's estimates for next year are up mm. in every major market in the world. I think that's farcical. Mm. Mm. Because the, the bit that we haven't touched on much, and I, I'm, I'm testing yours and your listeners' patience, so I'll do this quite quickly. No, it's but, okay. We've been going for 50 minutes, but it's the first one of the year, so let's just keep yeah, chatting. Yeah, well, I, I don't <laughs> want to crap on too long. But the, <laughs> the other part of this is going back to that point around we had zero interest rates for 10 years, didn't do stuff all. Mm. And then what happened? We got fiscal. Mm. So government spent money. Mm. That won't happen again. Mm. To the same extent. And, and in the United States, it, it will not happen again. Yeah. So people must not think that this parliamentary wrangling stuff that's going on in Congress is random. It's not. Mm. That's an agenda being expressed. It's exactly the same thing that's happened in 2010. So that was the Tea Party revolution. This, does, this one doesn't have a name, mm-hmm. but it's the same thing. Yeah. So... An enforced um, kind of fiscal rectitude. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. And mm. and so from 2010 through to the Trump tax cuts that were announced in 2016, implemented in 17, as I recall, could be wrong, the US deficit shrank by 7% of GDP. Mm-hmm. And that's that's roughly what that economy grew by less than as a result. It's fascinating to me that you're sitting around with your colleagues at Platinum and that these are the kind of discussions that you're having. And yeah, I mean, these are the kind of, of. Because you're... You really want to have a look at what's going... You're trying to work out what's going to happen to markets in the future. Yeah. And they're going to affect the investments that you're making, which yeah. companies you're going to buy and which ones you're going to avoid. Yeah. By and large, we have a bit of a... Look, we have a morning meeting every day and then there's a couple of other meetings a week. But really all you're doing is sitting around reading and and then dropping numbers into spreadsheets and yeah, just having and seeing of, what comes out of just the having to play around with it yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but like platinum um, a lot of people's money via their super would be invested in platinum and other other yeah fund managers like yourself yeah mm. and we're beginning to justify the faith because we we stretched the friendship for a while there um, <laughs> so the exercise that we're really engaged in is a balancing of risks mm-hmm. so it's it, everyone can see what something earned last year yep. and you just have to work out what you want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we can get a bit sanctimonious about not wanting to pay too much and that's cost us returns in the last, you know, the, in the last part of this last cycle, uh, which is what I meant by my earlier comment. Now there's a bit of a reckoning happening there and so folks like us who are just a bit more, you know, value rather than growthy, mm. uh, we tend to do a little bit better in that yep. environment so we don't lose as much and we might even, you know, post some positive numbers while you know markets in general or, or other folks go the other way and that's sort of what's happening at the moment mm. um i'll just add one other thing to that as well which is yeah. a pretty big sort of thing is the other other thing that's happening is china's beginning to go okay mm. we would just suggest that there's probably a long slow but a definite reopening trade there mm-hmm. probably been pretty well expressed pretty quickly so uh, you know i'm not suggesting people get too carried away with it but it will be very gradual and the chinese are obsessed with it, with avoiding inflation mm. so so they observed what happened in the west they don't want any of that mm. but 
they are getting to a post-COVID or I don't know if it is post-COVID, but we all just get used to it. Whatever it is that they're doing. And that was always going to happen. Yep. That was always going to happen. And that puts a bit of a bid underneath, I mean, a hop. I mean, you know, basically all of Europe, I mean, has sort of, you've had this, so China's sort of reopening. They're a huge trade partner of, um, you know, a whole bunch of the Europeans, um, which has helped. Uh, it's been, it's, I think it's observable in the Aussie dollar, which has been pretty chirpy since about, you know, October. Iron ore prices, coal prices, copper prices, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that, and that's sort of bubbling away as well. Mm. Um, I wouldn't suggest it'll be anything like a boom. It'll just, it'll just be boring. Mm. Mm. Right. And uh, people just need. Not too hot, not too cold. Well, it might be too cold. It might be a bit boring for everybody. Mm. It might be a bit, bit lazy and slovenly, but. That's that's fine, mm. you know. That's fine, and so I would suggest to people that China looks a little bit like Japan in the early two thousands. Mm-hmm. It's about the same length of time since that equity market made a peak. So Japan made its peak in eighty nine. Yep. China made its peak in 07. Uh, You know, we're a full fifteen years on, getting on for sixteen years on. That equity market's about half where it was back then in an economy that's 15 times the size. Yep. It's a pretty interesting start. And the nature of that economy has changed a lot. And we're just going to have to get our heads around recognizing that this is a functional place. Mm. People looking for some crisis or collapse or whatever, people have been looking at that for 30 years. right? Mm. Japan had a ripping great collapse. But 15 years later, you could buy it. Don't tell me, could. You, we did. We, we've, you know, we've made six times our money in Japan in 20 years. Mm. And the place has got cheaper every year. Mm. Well, how does that happen, Phil? Because mm. the, the companies make money. Yep, yep. <laughs> they make money. And they're very conservative lo- run, yeah, conservatively right. runners, totally. I, I believe, yeah. Totally. Mm. So is there... They risk? don't take on debt in, in Japan, do they? Not anymore, mm. because that was what that 80s boom was, was a yep. debt bubble. Mm. And then they learnt that lesson and they won't do it anymore. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that, that, that just broadens the return profile of markets globally. Mm-hmm. And we, because of the length and strength of the last cycle we were in, people feel like, you know, every one of the top 10 companies in the world should be in the US and, you know, everyone should own them and blah, blah, blah. That's just yeah. a cycle. Mm. Mm. That's just a cycle. You know, seven of the top 10 companies in the world in 89 were in Japan. Mm, mm. It's not natural that one place has more. Yep. They'll have a few. It's a, I'm not by any stretch denigrating the States. We have 25% of our money there. Mm, right. Mm. So, right. It's just that of all places, people in Australia might want to understand the world as being a lot bigger than 2% of the world's economy here. Mm. Mm. and 20% of the world's economy in the States. There's all this other stuff, which we actually know a lot about yep. because we sell all our stuff to <laughs> China. And then India is some function of that thereafter. And then there's another billion and a half people, you know, in broader Asia after that, Yeah, you know, in yeah. big countries that grow pretty quick. So that's all good. That's all good stuff. You know, you're all your, your energy complex and your iron ore and your, you know, your specialty metals and your clean energy and all that's going to be, that's going to be the next cycle, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And we've just got a tricky little period of adjustment around getting somebody cost of capital back into the economy <laughs> and probably parking a few people on the sidelines in the, in the meantime to get to that point. 
So it's none of this is the end of the world. It's just much more like the late, um, I going to say late 80s, probably, you know, early 80s, mm. mid-70s, and sort of the 90s recession as well. We just haven't had one for a long time. They're not that, they're not that much fun, but yeah. they're just, it's not the end of the world. It's you just got to, don't be levered, right? Just be cautious and don't pay too much for stuff because you do want to be cautious in this environment, but don't, you know, don't lose, don't lose your mind. And yeah, and don't it, expect the and, end of the and world. Right, yeah. And right now, I think people will feel pretty chipper because markets are up a fair bit. I mean, the, the DAX is up like nearly 30% mm. off its lows. Mm. That you, you know, most European markets are within 10% at all-time highs. Yeah. So, you know, now people will feel comfortable. We will go through cycles of them feeling very uncomfortable again, mm. exactly as they have through the course of 2022, possibly for another couple of years. Mm. That's all. And so... Just, you know, whatever, stay the course or trade it or do whatever you want, but understand the process you're in um, and and understand that we are likely going into a recession. It's likely pretty long and grinding. It's likely not great for asset prices. But again, it's not the end of the world. Julian, that's a great point to end on. Thanks very much for coming in and joining me today. Uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you, Phil. Thank and you. happy 2023. Yeah, have a good one. <laughs> This information has been prepared by Platinum Investment Management Limited, ABN 25063565006, AFSL 2211935. Trading is Platinum Asset Management. This information is general in nature and does not take into account your specific needs or circumstances. You should consider your own financial position, objectives and requirements and seek professional financial advice before making any financial decisions. Commentary reflects Platinum's views and beliefs at the time of preparation, which is subject to change without notice. Certain information contained in this podcast constitutes forward-looking statements. Due to various risks and uncertainties, actual events or results may differ materially from those reflected or contemplated in such forward-looking statements, and no undue reliance should be placed on those forward-looking statements. To the extent permitted by law, no liability is accepted by Platinum for any loss or damage as a result of any reliance on this information. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.